This is an extra episode of Victor's Children for late October 2021. It's an interview about imperialism that Posey Legg and I did for the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is a small eco-socialist initiative that we're involved with. Uh, it's with Todd Gordon. Todd is one of the editors of the publication Midnight Sun, which I'm also a member of uh, the editorial board of. Uh, Todd is the author of the book Canada and Empire, the co-author with Jeff Weber of Blood of Extraction, Canadian Imperialism in Latin America, and also author of an earlier book on cops, crime, and capitalism. Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past, it continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Hi, welcome back to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. It's me, Posey, and on this episode, David and I interview Todd Gordon about Canadian imperialism and anti-imperialist politics. So just a heads up, there are a few audio glitches in this recording, and I've done my best to edit them out. But the first glitch actually includes the part where Todd introduces himself. So I'm going to introduce him now. Todd Gordon is a socialist who lives in Toronto, and he has written a number of books on imperialism including Imperialist Canada, which was published in 2010, and more recently, Blood of Extraction, Canadian Imperialism in Latin America, with Jeffrey Weber, that was published in 2016. So even with the audio issues, I still think this is a great episode, and uh, let's get right to it. Okay, so our topic today is imperialism, and we're joined from Toronto by Todd Gordon. Todd, could you introduce yourself? Hi. And so I should say, I'm David. Um, and with me on the podcast today is? Posey. Hi, everyone. Okay, so to start us off, Todd, I want to ask you, what in the, in the most general, broadest sense of the term is imperialism? Yeah, I would say that imperialism, in a very broad or general sense, involves the extraction and transfer of uh, in Marxist terms, we could say value or also use uh, wealth, uh, the extraction and transfer of wealth from uh, one region of the world, typically, or country, 
uh, to another typically richer, more powerful country or region of the world. And so I, I say both country and region because um, in what I would consider to be imperialist powers, the wealthiest, most powerful capitalist states uh, that sit atop the global hierarchy of states, uh, both act as individual countries with their own individual national self-interests, but also work in concert at times with one another. Uh, and I think you could accurately describe them as a, as a sort of, as a region, sometimes in academic terms, people use the language of the global North or, um, and I think slightly more problematic ways, uh, the developed world. Uh, and those countries such as the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Canada, Japan, I would include China, all have in their own ways relationships with much poorer countries that compose the region of the world that ought typically in a systematic way has wealth drawn from them. Uh, and that can be done through uh, economic means like domination of markets that favors wealthy, powerful countries and their corporations, but always backed up by forms of state power, whether that is individual state power, like the United States, for example, and its diplomatic and political and military might, or um, regional or transnational organizations, such as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is one particular example. So there is a type of imperialism that existed before capitalism, you know, people, Roman Empire, all that sort of stuff. Um, but there is something different about imperialism under capitalism. And if you could, um, it would be great if you could kind of talk about that relationship between imperialism and capitalism. So yeah, uh, imperialism, uh, the domination of poor countries by wealthier or more powerful countries isn't new to capitalism. Um, you have had in different historical periods, wealthy empires from the Roman Empire through to uh, European, powerful European feudal states who dominated weaker powers. Uh, and of course, initiated occupation in the Western hemisphere and what's today North America and South America. I think a, a, an important difference is that prior to capitalism, it was, typically took the form of what some Marxists might refer to as extra economic or, or political um, exploitation, which is to say that, uh, say, for example, a feudal European power would directly occupy a, a country and uh, impose a set of economic relations on that, uh, that territory. Um, from slavery and various kinds of forced labor to extract resources from them. And they didn't typically engage in intensive, um, productive, what Marx is called productive improvement, or ensnare those poor countries in what we would call market or free market relations. Uh, because prior to capitalism, what we describe today as, say, market imperatives were all bound up global north, global south, imperialist, imperialized, ensnared in, in, in market relations uh, as a form of survival, as a form of your existence. Our lives get reproduced through market relations. Prior to capitalism, that wasn't the case. And so typically speaking, imperialism or colonial relations took the form 
of direct territorial domination and direct extraction of surplus from those countries and transferring that surplus back to the imperialist power in Europe, typically in Europe. Uh, under capitalism, you see a shift away from, not immediately and not exclusively, but you see a shift away from colonial occupation and direct domination in that particular way uh, over time and a shift towards a system where by imperial powers can use the levers of their dominance in global free markets to extract wealth and resources uh, and take advantage of and maintain cheap labor supplies in these poor countries. Uh, and that's a process that has been ongoing for well over a century. If you look at the sort of modus operandi of imperialism, the latter half of the 19th century and into the first half of the last century, you still obviously saw a lot of colonial occupation uh, and the sort of older forms of colonial domination. But you saw also within that a shift first by Britain, I think most notably by Britain in the 19th century. And then of course, by the United States in the 19th century and early 20th century towards uh, a kind of more form of um, what Alan Wood calls the empire capital, but basically market domination. Um, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, for example, and her classic work on imperialism talks about the way in which market mechanisms and debt relations can be used as a lever and are used by a as a lever against poor countries. So that was kind of going on at the same time, both those kinds of dynamics. And then you see the shift after the Second World War under the global hegemony of the United States as the dominant imperialist power. And also very importantly, uh, in the wake of the national liberation struggles of poor countries um, from basically the end of the Second World War into the 1970s, you see the shift, right? So the end of that kind of formal colonialism doesn't mean the end of imperialism, or if you want it, some people might still call it colonialism or neocolonialism. It doesn't mean the end of those things. It just means the form that they've taken has changed as capitalism has become way more global uh, uh, as, a, as a dominant form of the reproduction of our lives. I'd like to bring Canada into this. Um, and before we talk about Canada today and where it fits into the imperialist system, could you talk a little bit about how Canada came to become an imperialist power? Well, I think it's important. Obviously, Canada is a product of the British Empire. And as your listeners will know, that Canada as a settler colonial society is born as a settler colonial society through the direct territorial occupation that that form of colonialism that we were just talking about. I mean, that's, that form of colonialism is uh, central to the existence of the Canadian state and is an ongoing feature of the Canadian state. So I just to circle back, maybe I was making the point that that particular form of colonialism has um, become less relevant since in the last 60, 70 years as the form of imperialism has shifted globally. Um, and so we should just, we should offer a caution or a, qualify, a, a qualification, which is to say that direct territorial occupation does still occur. It can occur, even if it doesn't necessarily entail new settlements. So the United States is engaged in occupation in the Middle East and, and Central Asia um, recently, uh, just, you know, in the last two decades. But also settler colonialism is still a very important feature of 
global capitalist economy and you shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, and Canada obviously is an important example of that. And so Canada is born of, and of settler colonial relations, uh, the violent displacement through plunder, fraud, and other forms of displacement of indigenous peoples. And absence that ongoing dynamic that is of colonial displacement and the continuing uh, denial of indigenous peoples their rights to uh, self-determination uh, and sovereignty and is able to exist as a colonial power and what i would say though is that canada is a good example of a sort of dialectic of this kind of settler colonialism colonial direct colonial occupation and the other form of imperialism more market-based dominance that i was uh, alluding to so from pretty much day one of the formation of the Canadian state, it had interests abroad, again, connected to the British Empire, but the development of, of Canadian banks, Canadian mining companies was always sort of connected to interests abroad, sometimes in conjunction with the British Empire or the forces of the British Empire, sometimes simply on their own terms. I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. That goes back to the 19th century with Canadian banks, um, especially Canadian banks, but other companies as well, pursued their expansion into, in particular, like the Caribbean uh, and backed by the Canadian state. And that's, that becomes much more prevalent like elsewhere after the Second World War as an imperial interest beyond Canadian borders right? and really takes off from the 1990s onwards. And so when we're thinking about Canada, I think we, we could see the connection between settler colonial project, the settler colonial project, and the more expansionary project beyond Canadian borders, both because absence without the settler colonial project, you wouldn't see that expansion beyond Canadian borders because Canada, as we understand it, wouldn't exist. You can also understand it because all the companies that pursue international interests, the banks, for example, the mining companies, infrastructure companies, most of them got their start within Canada through the settler colonial project. So how does Canada fit into the current imperialist world order? So in relationship with imperialized states and also um, in competition with other imperialist powers like the U.S.? Well, I would describe Canada as a secondary imperialist power, uh, and that's the language that's used by other folks as well who study this. Jerome Clausen, for example, uses that language as well. And so Canada, on the one hand, Canada is not the dominant imperial power, and it's not aspiring to and doesn't have the capacity to become a rival to like the United States or I would argue China. And so that's not where Canada, Canada doesn't have the capacity to set the global agenda in terms of diplomatic or political power, certainly not economic power, um, and of course not military power in the way that a country like the United States does, and possibly China. On the other hand, simply because that's the case, it doesn't mean that Canada doesn't have the ability to project its own power internationally. It does, and it does do so. Uh, so in other words, Canada is not an imperialized country. Uh, it has its own national, I would argue, its own national indigenous bourgeoisie, even in the period of globalization where you see more transnational ownership. I still think it's very clear that you can identify a Canadian bourgeoisie and a Canadian, uh, Canadian capital, that is capital that emerges in and is still linked to Canada and in particular to the Canadian state. 
despite having transnational interests. So in that sense, I think Canada has the capacity on its own to project its economic interests, even if it doesn't do so with the force and scale of the United States. It also has consistently in global rankings, it's usually within the top 15 or so. I haven't looked in the last couple of years, but it, in the last two decades, it's been consistently in the top 15 of, of military spenders. Again, nowhere near the United States or China, for example, right? But, but actually, it's still one of the biggest military spenders in the world. And as we know, it's used its military in all sorts of different places from uh, Afghanistan uh, to the Middle East, to Africa, and to uh, the Caribbean in the last two decades. So uh, in that sense, I think it's reasonable to, and, and sorry, I'll add that, you know, Canadian, there's a whole host of Canadian multinationals from banking to mining, to garment manufacturers, uh, among others, who draw wealth out of the global South. And Canada draws way more wealth through foreign direct investment out of the global South than the global South through its own foreign direct investment, draws out of Canada. So that's why I would situate Canada as a secondary imperialist power. Let's talk about some of the misconceptions that people on the left have about imperialism. And, uh, you know, for example, one would be that imperialism is just about some specific policies. Can you maybe contrast that with the way you would understand imperialism? I think a, a, a Marxist viewpoint is that imperialism um, and capitalist states are emerged and developed to facilitate the expansion of capital and the reproduction of capitalist social relations. And so in that respect, the wealthiest, most powerful countries, there's a logic that's driving them to seek out markets internationally and where necessary to enforce order or reorder um, global affairs or regional affairs in their interests. And in that respect, it doesn't matter who the political leader is in the sense that capitalist relations have a imperial dynamic to them, I would argue. As Marx said, the, uh, the world market is imminent in the concept of capital. So as a Marxist, I think it's important to understand that imperialism is not reducible to political leaders. Uh, imperialism is rooted in the logic of capitalism. You have capitalism, you're going to have imperialism of one form or another. You can change the political leader, and particularly when you're talking about wealthy, most powerful countries who uh, have the most expansionary dynamics to them and whose states have developed and, uh, in a way to facilitate the expansion of capitalist social relations um, beyond their own borders to support the interests of their capital. In that respect, it doesn't really matter who a president of the United States is. And I think history is very clear about that. You can go from Ronald Reagan to uh, Bill Clinton uh, to George Bush and, and Barack Obama to Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And, can, and at no point at that time, through all those changes in presidents, did the United States stop being an imperialist power, did it stop projecting its power globally uh, and the interests of American capital in terms of reordering markets and political relations were necessary. Um, and so, and I think you could say the same thing about Canada, like Justin Trudeau didn't stop Canadian mining companies from expanding into the global south. Justin Trudeau didn't um, dramatically scale back spending on the Canadian military. 
Justin Trudeau didn't stop Canada from participating in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or the International Monetary Fund. So you can change political leaders, but you don't change the fact that capitalism is at its core imperialist. That is, it has that kind of expansionary dynamic to it that is going to drive uh, capital from Canada or from the United States into new markets and new territories and coming into conflict with people in those territories. What might change is the strategic outlook of a given president or a given prime minister, right? They can change their strategies. One might be more multilateral, seek out alliances with other like-minded imperial powers. One might be more unilateral uh, and pursue a national self-interest more stridently in the absence of uh, coalition building. But they're both ultimately trying to reproduce the same relations, that is imperialist relations. And I guess we could add, of course, that if Jagmeet Singh and the NDP were to form the federal government, it would, you know, the, the same thing you were talking about would still be be true for Canada. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, connected to this idea, um, I want to bring something else up, which is that many of the people who do focus uh, on the left focus on imperialism and, you know, ruthlessly criticizing, rightly, what uh, U.S. and Canada are doing globally, uh, tend sometimes to see the world as if that's the only imperialist power, uh, you know, the U.S. or perhaps the U.S. and its allies is the only imperialist powers uh, and see, you know, all other countries kind of that are not part of that as non-imperialist. So they would, for example, say that China is not imperialist uh, or, or that Russia is not imperialist. Do you have any things you'd like to say about that view of the world? Well, it's a deeply ahistorical one, isn't it? If one were to like, look at the broad scope of capitalist history, you're more likely to see rivalries historically than you are a single imperial power. So the idea that you can only have one single dominant imperial power in a capitalist capitalist world order is simply not accurate historically. Um, And it also also betrays a really profound lack of understanding of capitalist social relations and how the expansionary logic of capitalism is a central component of it, of imperialism, that is, of capitalism and imperialism. That is to say, imperialism isn't reducible to a state. Um, China is a capitalist country, for example. It is. And it's one of the biggest, wealthiest capitalist countries in the world. And so it's absurd to think that China couldn't possibly have expansionary, an expansionary logic driving it. And obviously, if you actually look at Chinese foreign policy, it seems self-evident. So I think it's an absurd position to have that betrays a real lack of understanding both of capitalist social relations and of capitalist history. Uh, And for most of that history, there's been rivals that have competed with one another, which is not to say that they're all equal, right? Britain was a dominant imperial power, but there were European powers as well who had colonial interests and they projected their power abroad. They weren't not in scale that the British could, but who would have said that the French or the Belgians weren't imperialist, for example, or that the Germans, when they rivaled the British, weren't imperialist. So uh, I think it's a real, it's a really deficient way of, of understanding how capitalism works. Uh, before we move on to talk about anti-imperialism, is there anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of misconceptions about, Im- about imperialism that you might find on the left in Canada? Well, I do think amongst some people, in particular the, the folks that you're describing who are unable or perhaps more likely unwilling to see other countries as imperialist, well, perhaps more broadly, there's an idea that amongst some Marxists that imperialism equals monopoly power. Uh, and that goes back to 
most theorists of imperialism in the late 19th, early 20th century. There are some exceptions, but for whom the idea was that capitalism had entered a particular stage, the monopoly stage of, of capitalism, uh, and that the growth of these massive corporations or companies uh, usually uh, entailing in this, the argument goes, a fusion of banking and industrial capital has created a surplus of capital domestically and has forced them to expand abroad. The absence of competition under monopoly capitalism domestically entails competition of national states defending their monopoly capital globally. And it's surprising to me that you still see people, usually as shorthand, refer to monopoly capitalism, monopoly power. And I don't think that was an accurate way of understanding imperialism in the 19th and early 20th century. I think the empirical evidence that it was monopolies that drove capitalism, that drove colonialism uh, is at best extremely weak. And it's also based on a very deficient reading of Karl Marx and um, capital. Uh, and I think it's even more unhelpful to think about it or to use that concept today. So I would just offer a caution for people who are sort of diving into their readings of imperialism and perhaps for one reason or another, their attention has been drawn to the, the classics in Lenin, uh, Bukharin, and some others. Uh, I just offer a caution that I don't think the concept of monopoly capital uh, offered a lot of analytical acumen a century ago. And I think it offers even less today. And I'll just maybe add for listeners that uh, the U.S. Journal Monthly Review continues to kind of put out that theory. So that would be a contemporary That's right, yeah. source that sees imperialism that way. But before we talk about anti-imperialism, one last thing, which is an idea that used to be much more common on the left in Canada is that Canada is not imperialist, right? People who were left-wing nationalists in Canada would argue that Canada is not an imperialist country. That's much less common now than used to be the case as more people recognize Canada as an imperialist country, but would you like to say anything about that before we move on, Todd? Yeah, uh, the notion of, I think the heyday of that idea of a kind of left nationalism, that Canada was a, a rich dependency as some people, the language some people use, which is they're using the language of uh, dependency theory, which was a way of explaining the relationship of poor countries or the, what was then called the third world post-colonial countries to the global north in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And so some Canadians like Leo Panitch adapt, tried to adapt that to Canada to say, well, we're not the poorest of the poor, but we're still subjected to domination by the United States. That, well, that had its heyday in the 1960s and 70s. And if we want a slightly more historical uh, discussion, it actually goes back to the Communist Party uh, in the 1920s. I think it's taken up in the 1930s by the Communist Party. It becomes a dominant sort of like a, a key, a central kind of conception of the Communist Party in terms of how it sees Canada's relationship to the rest of the world. And it's worth noting, as far as I can tell, that's still the position of the Communist Party today in Canada. And I think that position has been largely eclipsed because, uh, and I should say, to be fair, there were people who were criticizing this in the 1970s and 80s, but they were sort of swimming against the current for much of that time. But today, I think that's less so the case as you point out, David. And I think that has a lot to do with one, the important research and organizing that's been done around mining companies. And I don't wanna reduce Canadian imperialism to mining, but that's some of the most egregious human rights and ecological disasters are a result of Canadian mining companies. And there's been enough writing about that by activists and left-wing NGOs uh, 
uh, and it's gained enough enough of that that I think more people are aware of what Canadian mining companies are doing and having trouble squaring that with the idea that Canada could somehow not be imperialist or have any kind of imperialist reflex to it. And I think the other really important part to this too is the very central work that anti-racist organizers have been doing, particularly around migrant justice and indigenous activists and allies have been doing. And I think, again, if you have a, a more serious and nuanced understanding of the sort of struggles of immigrants and, uh, and Canada as a sort of as a racist project, then it's hard to square that with the fact that Canada somehow could be a, a colonized country itself vis-a-vis the say the United States. And I think a lot of those people played a key role in challenging some of the myths that you spoke of, David. Yeah, I think that talk of migrant justice and indigenous resistance leads us well to the last question that David's been hinting at <laughs> quite a bit, um, which is anti-imperialism. So what would you, Todd, say is anti-imperialism? And then as a follow-up, what kind of anti-imperialism should we as Canadian socialists support? Well, I think you have it, anti-imperialism has to start ideally from an understanding of what the root causes of imperialism are, which is what I was speaking about earlier, that it's not reducible to a state, that it's something that is deeply intertwined with the logic of capitalism. Uh, and thus imperialism, can there can be more than one and are more than one imperialist power in the world. And so if you're going to build anti-imperialist politics, I think you have to start at that point. That's an important place to start. And so uh, anti-imperialism isn't reducible to simply criticizing what the, the American empire is doing. And of course that's important because the American empire is the American empire, right? But if Canada's imperialist, if other countries are imperialist, I think we have to t- 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 take stock of that. And so uh, to the flip side of that is uh, rooting relations of solidarity, which I think is key to anti-imperialist politics, in those struggles that people are waging against imperialist powers. And it doesn't matter what the imperialist power is. If a rich, powerful country is dominating another country, if it's uh, imposing its will politically and economically or militarily on another country, we should be in solidarity with those people who are struggling against that. And it doesn't matter if it's the dominant superpower or a lesser power uh, who's perhaps on its own seeking to become a dominant imperial power that's doing that. And that will mean that we also have to understand that anti-imperial politics, the struggles of people on the ground are not always going to be exactly as we'd like them to be, that um, they can be full of contradiction. And that doesn't mean that we somehow won't have credibility as anti-imperialists in the global North if we express solidarity with folks whose politics aren't exactly as we'd like them to be. Because anti-imperialism means solidarity with people in struggle, I think. And you can't make those kinds of demands on people. Like you could favor some people in the struggle over others, most certainly, but you, you, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to enter into struggle against imperial power without any kind of contradiction in their politics. Uh, or with their politics looking exactly like we'd like them to. Could you give an example that might illustrate that general point you're making? Well, sure. Uh, I think we could point out people struggling uh, 
against uh, the Chinese state in, in Hong Kong and, uh, or against, uh, yeah, I mean, let's leave it at that. So people struggling against the Chinese state in Hong Kong, they could express a whole number of series of politics. Uh, some, perhaps a minority, or going to express something close to, or have some understanding that communism isn't, isn't I, I, identical with the Chinese state, right? They'll have like a progressive left politics to them. Others might have, uh, like they might wave an American flag or a British flag. Hong Kong used to be a British colony, thinking that things were better under the, the British empire. And of course we know that Hong Kong is not better being under the British empire. We support Hong Kong's self-determination. And so there's lots of, there's messiness to it, right? But I think at core, anti-imperialism means not siding with China because China gets targeted by the United States, which it does, and it gets criticized by the United States. It means siding with people who are in struggle. And maybe, what about a Latin American example that people might be more familiar with? Uh, well, I mean, for example, I did a lot of research on Honduras and it had a government overthrown in 2009. And uh, I also did a lot of research in Ecuador and, and it was targeted by um, Canada and the United States when it elected a left-wing government in, in the 2000s, Rafael Correa. And like when I say left-wing, I should say, be clear, both the government of Manuel Zelaya in Honduras or Rafael Correa in Ecuador both targeted by mining companies in particular, but you know the Canadian American states and so on, and their own their own security forces, and ultimately Manuel Zelaya was overthrown in 2009 in Honduras. Rafael Correa was not overthrown, but I think arguably you could say imperial interests had had imperial powers had interests in destabilizing both of those countries, and we're happy to see Manuel Zelaya go, and would have been happy to see Rafael Correa go, but that led some people to assume that they were way more left both of them way more left wing than they actually were. And Rafael Correa, for example, um, after initially saying he wasn't going to permit mining, permitted mining. Uh, and even if large numbers of indigenous peoples uh, fought against that and had played a key role in him getting elected in the first place, um, and he invoked anti-terror laws and used all sorts of, kind of racist language against indigenous peoples. Uh, and I think that led some people to, has led some people to assume that he was way more, uh, like the fact that he was being targeted by empire, that he was way more left wing than he actually was. Uh, and I think that's not the point. Like, I think the point is that Ecuador or Honduras has a right to be self-determining and to decide their own, their own fate, even if the politics of Zelaya or Korea aren't what we'd like them to be, right? And when they're not what we like to, to be, we could also identify the fact that there's people, indigenous peoples in particular in the case of Ecuador who are in struggle and their struggles are really, really important. And uh, they don't lose importance for us as anti-imperialists if the government that they're struggling against is also in the crosshairs of empire. That was really long and convoluted. I, I wasn't thinking before you asked that question about Latin America, like I just wasn't. That was, you know, that was good. If, 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 you, if you, I would have been able to be a lot more succinct in, in uh, that question, because the, the Raphael Korea question is a good one, because like, uh, I'm trying to think of what's, oh, uh, uh, the Venezuelan, um, Talisur. Talisur? Yeah. Like, it used to like publish stuff that was like, 
how dare you criticize Raphael Korea, Raphael, you know, like, because he's in the crosshairs of the Americans and you know, he wasn't the Canadians as well. That wouldn't have been as big a focus, but yeah. So that's like actually a good example of like people who are like, uh, you're, you're a reactionary, you're terrible if you criticize Raphael Korea. Well, yeah, Raphael Korea invoked terrorist law and like anti-terror law against indigenous people. So yeah, I could have done a better job. I apologize if you want me to try that again. <laughs> I got it. So okay, all right. That's a pass. That's a pass. And edit it uh, as a. Yeah, I have one more question. It's kind of sure if you have time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of curious if you have anything to say about the relationship between. You know, we talked about Canadian mining companies and the relationship between that and our imperialism, but um, Canadian imperialism or imperialism more generally, and the climate crisis Mm. or ecological crisis. Do you have anything in particular to, to say about that relationship that our listeners might want to know or think about? Well, I, I think there's an, that's an important question. Uh, and I think that people writing on imperialism are only starting to really think that question through in a systematic way, which is not to say that, that that's not happening, but you know, it's only, it, it perhaps deserves more attention than it's received. I think if we're going to talk about imperialism and environmental crisis, we should circle back to where we started the conversation, which was Canada's a settler colonial project. Right now, settler colonial, the settler colonial project is central Canadian existence, the existence of the Canadian project. And that's not gonna change anytime soon, uh, except through the struggles of indigenous peoples and their allies to change it. And we have to understand not only is it central to the Canadian project, but it's going to intensify. And the reason why it's going to intensify is because Canadian capitalism has been on the cusp of crisis long before COVID. Uh, I've written about this with uh, Jeff McCormick in Briar Patch. And one of the key ways, not the only way, but a key way in which the Canadian state and Canadian ruling class is seeing uh, a way of addressing the crisis of profitability of Canadian capitalism is through the intensification of oil and gas expansion, uh, and in particular of expanding uh, pipeline access to the, to, to the British Columbia coast. Okay. And the reason why that's so important is because one, oil and gas expansion, there's still a lot of money to be made in it. There's a lot of sunk costs in the tar sands. And so Canadian oil and gas companies and global oil and gas companies too, for that matter, it's not just a Canadian issue, of course, uh, have no intention of stopping the expansion of oil and gas extraction. The problem for Canada is it wants a big market to export its products to, right? As a way of building up its financial resources to address the declining profitability elsewhere. The United States has become uh, a problem for Canada because of both environmental uh, opposition to the expansion of pipelines into the United States, but also, uh, and I don't know exactly what the numbers are now, but a few years ago, there was worry within the Canadian ruling class and in particular the oil and gas sector that the United States was becoming once again, self-sufficient as an oil and gas producer. And so that meant that they needed another market. Well, who's the biggest market in the world for, or will be, and is the biggest, most rapidly growing market for oil and gas expansion is it's China. Right? So how do you get oil and gas from Alberta to China? You build pipelines 
to the BC coast. And that's why it's, that's the importance of this pipeline is why the Canadian state bought a pipeline. It's why it will do everything it can to circumvent the so-called the duty to consult, uh, which is not that hard to circumvent actually in any case, because uh, it really is only a duty to consult and why it's willing to, despite all the criticism, to send in um, RCMP paramilitaries that violently remove people, Indigenous peoples, from the land that the pipelines are, are passing through. Uh, and it's why the NDP in Alberta, when it was elected, was as a, uh, financially and emotionally invested in oil and gas as, as the Conservative governments in Alberta. And so to talk about environmentalism and imperialism and the environmental crisis imperialism we need to start with the colonial the settler colonial project um, but of course canadian oil and gas companies canadian mining companies extractive companies who do incredible environmental damage american oil and gas companies and mining companies australian britain british and so on um, they you know as they face restrictions at home both legal and physical opposition one of the things they do is seek out alternative markets or uh, geographic locations for these resources where regulations are much weaker. They have, because they're much more powerful than those states, they can manipulate um, politicians and legal processes to make sure that the regulatory environment is uh, what is, is permissible to extract more oil and gas, to build more pipelines, to build bigger open pit mines that involve blasting off the side of mountains and leaching arsenic into the ground with little repercussion for what you're doing. And so, uh, and another sort of part component to that is that it's the richest countries who are causing the most environmental damage in particular around like carbon emissions, but poorer countries are facing a disproportionate amount of problems as even like relative to the kind of carbon emissions and other environmental damage they're, they're causing. So there's a few different ways you can think of imperialism and, and environmental crisis. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to make is that the imperialist project is also uh, an ecological project. And I, I, think, I think it's important to see it that way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity winnipeg.ca.